into a, the vision of the ascended Christ, the one who has ascended into the highest of heavens, victorious over his enemies, vanquishing his foes. And let's begin in verse 7 of Ephesians chapter 4. Paul says, But grace was given to each one according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And kind of skipping down to verse 11, it says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. One of the three verses in Ephesians that uses the word fullness, from which we get our church's name, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So that may have felt like a lot. Let me just kind of simplify that a bit for us. And it's, it could maybe be simplified something like this. He gave these five-fold gifts to equip the saints. How long? Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, come to this, this full stature of Jesus, so that we may no longer be children in our thinking. And this verse, I think, in many ways speaks to the ongoing um, significance and role of apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers, because guess what? The church has some maturing to do, doesn't it? God is good, he's justified us, but there is a lot of growth yet to be done, and so we need, we need pastors, we need teachers, we need evangelists, we need prophets and apostles for this. I think when we talk about these fivefold gifts, we got to begin with Jesus, because Jesus perfectly embodied these fivefold giftings, right? Jesus is the sent one, the apostle sent from heaven to earth to uh, bring liberty to the captives, to open blind eyes, to bear witness to all that he's seen and heard, and to establish his church in the earth. And so Jesus commissioned sent ones, apostles, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to open blind eyes, and to plant churches in the earth, and to, and to open blind eyes. Jesus is also the great prophet, right? Um, before Jesus, God spoke to Israel through the prophets, uh, but in these last days, he's spoken to us through his son, the author of Hebrews says. Jesus prophesied of the Samaritan woman's past. He prophesied his own death and resurrection on the third day. He prophesied the his ascension to the Father, the coming of the Holy Spirit, the persecutions that his believers would experience on the count of his name. He prophesied the destruction of the temple and the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. He's the great prophet. Jesus is also the great evangelist, right? He is the one who came with good news, and his good news is the news of himself. And he is the great evangel after whom all evangelists can only aspire. To be. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And that was never more true than of anyone but Jesus. And Jesus is also the great pastor or the great shepherd. He feeds and guides and nurtures 
and cares for and lays down his life for his sheep. He is the great shepherd. And because he weeps when he sees sheep without a shepherd, he commissions pastors to care for the sheep. And all other pastors are under shepherds, caring for the sheep of the great shepherd. Jesus is your pastor, and he's mine. And Jesus is the great teacher, the rabbi who taught with authority. People were blown away by the words of Jesus, blown away. And from his words, we learn how to participate in the kingdom that he brought. We learn what it means to be a disciple of the greatest rabbi the world has ever seen. And as we do, we learn and we grow, we put into practice the things our rabbi has taught us. Being like Mary, who who chose the better part, to sit at the feet of her rabbi and just drink in his teachings. She couldn't get enough, knowing that we can be worried and and busied over many things, but the, the best part is to sit at the feet of our rabbi and hear what he has to say and do what he says to do. So that all other teachers myself included, Bart and, and, and Scott, any, any other teachers anywhere else, that our, our highest ambition is to see people discipled in the way of Christ, <laughs> conformed into the image of Christ and not, and not my own or anyone else's. It's a Jesus' image. So Jesus perfectly embodies the fivefold ministry, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And because of that, And he's given them his ministry, Jesus' ministry, albeit imperfectly, continues in the earth, embodied through apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, and other gifts given to the church of Jesus Christ. That's how the work of ministry of Christ remains embodied again, albeit very imperfectly, right? So let's talk about, y'all ready? Here we go. Apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, evangelists. Here we go. Let's begin with apostles. Apostles. The word apostle means sent one, and um, the question quickly becomes sent by who, and the answer is sent by Jesus. And so there's, we could maybe talk about a specialized use of the term apostle, which oftentimes might refer to the 12 apostles, uh, minus Judas, Adon, Matthias, we learn in the book of Acts, um, and maybe Paul, and, and maybe James as well. That might be a kind of more specialized use of the term, and then there's the more generic use of the term of others who are named as apostles or people we aren't named, but we know that we're there in the New Testament that were apostles. So, for example, in 1 Corinthians uh, 15, we read this For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. We'll come back to that. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Here in this text, one critical component of early apostles is that they saw Jesus. They saw the post-resurrected Lord. And we know that then to all the apostles doesn't refer to the 12 because he's already named them. It doesn't refer to James because he's been named or Paul. So clearly there were, there were a number of people who were, who were apostles. And in this text we see, certainly among these early apostles, they were 
sent by Jesus. We don't mean that in a metaphorical way. We mean literally Jesus appeared to them and sent them, right? Um, so that's a very clear thing we see here. There's other apostles named, um, and, and maybe they had a, a post-resurrected appearance of the Lord. Uh, Barnabas is kind of by inference an apostle with those scriptures. Uh, Titus and other missionaries and co-laborers of Paul. In 2 Corinthians 8.23, it's sometimes translated messengers, but the Greek word is apostolos, apostle, in that one. So I think there's other examples of, name, of unnamed apostles. And then there's an interesting verse I put up just for fun. Um, and this is Romans 6.17. And this is a verse that is, there's a, it's hotly debated in terms of how it should be translated. Um, and it's, it speaks of two people, Andronicus and Junia. Andronicus is a, is a man, Junia is a woman. And it could either be translated Andronicus and Junia well-known among the apostles or Andronicus and Junia well-known to the apostles. And there is fierce debate over how to translate this. And you're like, why? Who cares about this preposition? Well, the reason is, is because if it is translated well-known among the apostles, then that means Andronicus and Junia are themselves apostles, which would be an example of a female apostle in Scripture, which may have implications for the debate of females and leadership in the church. Um, and if it's Andronicus and Junia are well-known to the apostles, it just means the apostles know about these two people, and they're well-known uh, to the, the apostles. So I'm not going to settle the issue, just so you know. Uh, but it's possible that there is a woman named as an apostle, um, in the New Testament. Let me continue on. So apostles in the New Testament um, were church planters. They brought the, the gospel of Jesus Christ to places where the gospel had not yet uh, reached people or the name of Christ had been heard or believed upon. Um, why do we need apostles now? Well, because we need people sent to the ends of the earth. We need sent ones to plant churches um, across the ends of the earth and to unite the churches of God across cities and across regions, which we see happening. Uh, in Romans 1.5, Paul says, "Grace, uh, sorry, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we receive grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of the faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. So again, there's a, a very clear missional emphasis that comes with being an apostle. Um, I put this verse up here as well. I know I'm rushing through this, but it's like literally the fivefold ministry. I don't even, it's not possible. So here we go. Um, in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, Paul talks about the signs of a true apostle. Uh, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. So uh, at some level, power was connected. Miracle power was connected to the work of the apostles. Um, so in the previous chapter, in, back in Ephesians um, 2 and 3, actually, Paul talked about the key role that the, the first apostles and prophets had in laying the foundation for the church of Jesus Christ. Um, and they helped the church understand the mystery of Christ. Chapter 2, Paul will say, you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being the uh, chief cornerstone. In chapter 3, he'll talk about how this mystery of Christ was revealed by the apostles and prophets. And, and the mystery is this, is that the gospel 
has declared the inclusion of Gentiles into the covenant people of God, and they're now one new man, united in Christ, and that the apostles and prophets helped, of the early church, helped the, the, the church get this, this foundational understanding of how the church is built, Jew and Gentile brought together. But we know that their task didn't end, because in chapter 4 he'll say he's given these until uh, the church comes to the full stature of uh, and the unity of the faith, and no longer tossed around by different doctrines. I don't think we've arrived, <laughs> right? Um, so, Revelation 19.10, I love this verse, says, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Um, prophecy involves sharing a message from God uh, to a person or to a group of people. Um, sometimes it involves uh, for what would be called the forthtelling, speaking into the future. Um, we see, for example, in New Testament, Agapus prophesies of this coming famine. Um, other times it speaks of maybe things from the past or secrets of the heart, like Jesus with the woman at the Samaritan well, um, or things happening even in the moment. But in any case, whether past or present, it's, it's always a call in the moment to respond to God. It's not about prepping, really. It's about respond right now to what God is speaking and how you can draw near to him. Um, and that's what it does. It, it causes us to draw near to Jesus, draw near to life in the kingdom. Um, this last... Uh, so quick story. I'll try to do this quickly. Uh, about a year ago, my, my father uh, was like, son, did you know that your name is famous now? There's a Gabriel Hughes who's a pitcher for the Colorado Rockies. And uh, my dad just thought that was the coolest thing and, and somehow significant, although not yet known. And I was like, awesome. And, uh, and he, he was, he was he loved it so much that he texted, like, all 20 people in our small group text, like, Gabriel Hughes, the pitcher for the Colorado Rockies, and started texting us, like, how great his season was going, and it was great. And uh, so hold on to that. Um, about, you know, two or three weeks ago, when I'm filling out my fullness prayer request card for the week of prayer we just had, um, I, which many of you did as well, I put down my prayer request, and my prayer request was a prayer, uh, pray for discernment that I would discern um, the difference between what is good and what is best, between light and dark, and between uh, the assignments that God is giving me and distractions. That was my prayer request for discernment. And so yesterday, we were at our kind of the final day of our, our week of prayer, and Craig Stilley uh, comes up to the microphone, and God had put it on his heart to pray for discernment. And so he just prayed for you guys, for all of us, that we would, we would grow in, in discernment. Um, and then after we prayed on the mic, we all were called forward to come get the prayer cards that you all filled out. And as we get in the prayer card line, I, I come up right next to my dad, and my dad put something in my hand, and it's the baseball card of Gabriel Hughes. <laughs> and I'm like, all right, awesome. And we laugh about it. I hug him. He hugs me. And um, we go back to our seats, and, and Craig, out of all the cards, 100 or so, he gets mine, the only one he gets. And... Uh, and, of course, he just prayed for discernment, and my prayer request is for discernment. And instantly, he feels the Lord on it, and he, uh, God gives him a vision. And he comes right over to me, and he says, I have a word for you. And he said, I, I saw a, a picture of, of you holding a bow. 
um, and aiming at a target. And he said, I believe God is giving you discernment to make adjustments on the fly with circumstances and people in the moment to, like a a trained archer is able to make adjustments for the the wind and the direction and the intensity or or rain or if the target's moving, that they've been trained to make adjustments on the the fly and to hit the target, to hit their mark. And Craig specifically said, you're not the bow, you're not the arrow, you're the archer, you're the bowman. Okay, so an hour later, I walk up to my dad and uh, he's like, so you got the card. I, I just felt led to give you that baseball card today of Gabriel Hughes. And here it is. And he said, I want you to put it on your desk in your office. And I kind of laughed. And I was like, yeah, maybe so. And, um, and I, I pulled the card out of my pocket. And look what it says in the top right corner. I mean... Craig's giving me this prophetic word that I'm a bowman. He said, you're not the bow, you're not the arrow, you are the bowman. And, and within 10 minutes of that, my dad hands me a card that says, Gabriel Hughes, first bowman. And God is just a mastermind. He orchestrated a year ago, my dad to think this is super cool, which it is. And by the way, I probably will put this card on my desk for what it's worth. Um, and... God to put on Craig's heart to pray for discernment, make sure Craig got my card, make sure he got that vision, and out of all days, my dad felt led to give it to me that same morning. I mean, I just love prophecy. I just love the fact that God speaks now, right? Like, God has, God has always spoken, and, and of course, the scriptures are always our plumb line, but God speaks now, and by the way, the scriptures attest to it. I looked at Craig, and I said, man, it reminds me of that verse in Hebrews, where, God's, or where the scripture says, your powers of discernment are trained by constant practice. I mean, it's literally exactly what Craig said. And Craig was like, oh, cool. I didn't know about that verse. Craig didn't need to know about that verse. The Holy Spirit knew about that verse, right? He's so good. Okay, evangelists. <laughs> um, evangelists are people who are especially gifted to preach the gospel to the lost. Um, The term evangelist doesn't appear very often, interestingly, in the New Testament, um, but the word gospel does. So the word gospel is euangelion in the New Testament, and an euangelistas is a proclaimer of gospel, proclaimer of good news. Um, Euangelion, which we translate gospel, is a, a really fascinating word, I think, that Jesus and the apostles chose to represent the message of Jesus Christ. Um, because at that time, many people would have heard euangelion uh, as this kind of oftentimes royal or governmental proclamation. So uh, a herald might return from a battle to an anxious city to the population who's wondering how did the battle go and declare the euangelion, the good news, that we won and the city's safe. Or, there might, or a herald might proclaim the euangelion of a royal birth or the good news of a Caesar ascending to the throne, uh, which is, I think, not insignificant that one of the few places evangelists are mentioned is here in Ephesians 4.11, um, because Paul has just talked about the ascended Christ, who is now the world's new king, who's just defeated his enemies and led this host of captives in his victory. And uh, pro- these proclaimers of good news, these evangelists, are declaring the new king, the ascended, enthroned one, Jesus Christ, who's conquered death and the powers of darkness, and 
who's brought together the citizenry of Jews and Gentiles together. It's beautiful. Um, Clinton Arnold, a New Testament scholar, comments, since the apostles are gifted to go and proclaim the gospel in new areas where they would establish churches, the evangelists were probably those who remained in the local churches and continued to make the gospel known to those in the city or region who had not heard. Uh, you know, for example, Paul tells Timothy, who is a stationed pastor in Ephesus, do the work of an evangelist, right? Um, and that doesn't mean, let me, let me say, that doesn't mean evangelists can't travel. Of course, evangelists can travel. Um, Philip, the evangelist, traveled 20 miles uh, to Samaria, and you think, that's like from here to Leeds. True, but on foot, it's, it's harder, okay? Um, and so, that, that does seem to be the, the sense that the evangelists are not necessarily travelers. Um, they could be, but not necessarily. Um, okay, hold on to your, hold on, we're, we're still rolling here. Shepherds and teachers, pastors and teachers. Uh, the word pastor and the word shepherd can be used interchangeably. Um, and it has to do with an aspect of leadership, I think, in many ways. What do shepherds do? Well, shepherds feed the sheep. They guide the sheep, they protect the sheep from harm, they bind up their wounds so they can be healed. This is pastoring, this is shepherding. And in the book of Acts, Paul speaks again to the Ephesian elders, uh, who are overseers of God's flock and uses pastoral imagery in this passage in Acts 20. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock of God in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will rise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. A few comments on a pastor's task, and this is, of course, by no means exhaustive, but a pastor needs to pay attention to himself or herself, for one thing, right? I, that's a whole other sermon, pay attention to yourself. But a pastor needs to pay attention to the flock. A pastor that is disconnected with where people are and the way the culture is speaking to them. And the, a pa- pastors need to know how to diagnose the cultural moment, I, I really believe. Um, and so that's a, a key function. How are people's souls doing? And another key task of a pastor is to care, to care for the church and all that comes with how shepherds care for sheep, to care for them. Um, and another key function is to protect, uh, that there are people who will come and destroy the flock and divide the flock. And um, a pastor's task is to protect the sheep um, from twisted things, from twisted ideas and teachings. And this, of course, is a terrifying passage because he's saying, it's not going to come from out there. I'm looking at you guys um, like, oh, God, I mean, it's terrifying, actually, when I read a passage like this. Lord, have mercy on me. Um, okay, well, let's come back to where we started. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. We need Christ's gift of sent ones, apostles, to equip the saints to be sent out. We need the gift of uh, prophets to equip others to hear what God is saying and speak it to people. We need evangelists to equip us to evangelize. 
We need pastors to equip us to care for the sheep, and we need teachers to equip us to know the Word of God and to live the Word of God and to show others how to do the same. Leaders in the body of Christ do not exist to be praised or exalted or enthroned. <laughs> um, I was talking to Pastor Bart about this passage last week, and, and, and Pastor Bart just said, notice what's missing here. Authoritarianism, financial gain, political agenda. And, you know, we see many modern-day apostles and prophets and pastors who seem swept up in political agenda, and it's a problem. Um, it's very easy to confuse the kingdoms of men with the kingdom of God. And we think of, I mean, how many times do we wince hearing another story of pastor caught in financial scandal? An overseer must not be a lover of money, Paul tells Timothy. Or how many times do we wince hearing another story of a pastor who is spiritually abusive or manipulative or a bully? An overseer must not be uh, quarrelsome, must be hospitable, must be gentle, Paul tells Timothy. And by the way, though, you can find an authoritarian pastor in a church of 5,000, and you can find one in a church of 50. Power corrupts at every level. I want to be clear about that. There are lots of examples of pastors of a church of 50 that are a total bully, and they think everyone exists, everyone's there to serve them. And it happens in large churches. I want to be very clear about that. Um, this is a picture of Durham Cathedral. I didn't take this picture, but me and my wife, Jordan, were at Durham Cathedral in May. We got to, as a, I'm, a, I'm in a doctoral, a doctor of ministry program, and my cohort went this May. We had a, a great time to Scotland and England. Um, I'll, I could talk more about what we did there, but this site visit was to Durham Cathedral, and um, it is massive. I can't even, it's hard to, this next picture this right here is a quarter. This is like one corner of the, of the cathedral. You can see how small the people are. Um, and this is Jordan and I out front. Um, here's a picture of the inside. It just goes on and on and on. You can kind of see a little archway far down, and then it just keeps going beyond that. Um, it's beautiful. It's built by the Normans in, I think, like the 1080s. It's, almost, it's like 950 years old. Um, I actually had a really powerful moment with the Lord in Durham Cathedral, um, which is juxtaposed by what I'm about to say. Um, so this is the bishop's throne, the bishop's seat in Durham Cathedral. And uh, the, the story goes that a, a bishop, a, mid, a medieval bishop, sent one of his servants and said, hey, go to Rome and find out how high the pope's seat is. And he came back with the information, and he said, build mine higher. So, <laughs> the, the, the experience of self-important, self-exalting leaders in the body of Christ have always been true. At the same time, I want to say real quick, if you have a, a view of church history um, that says that there was, there, it was just completely corrupt, and there were no faithful saints um, until you came along or something like that, um, or that the medieval church was hopelessly lost, um, then you probably have a view of church history informed by Hollywood. There have always been amazing followers of Jesus Christ in every era of the church. Here's an example. St. Francis, around the same time, 
who was the founder of the Franciscan um, monastic order, this is how he encouraged his, the leaders in his order to view their office of leadership. I did not come to be served, but to serve, says the Lord. Those who are placed over others should glory in such an office only as much as they would were they assigned the task of washing the feet of the brothers. And the more they're upset about their office being taken away from them than they would over the loss of the office of feet, I love that phrase, the office of feet, (laughs) so much more do they store up treasures to the peril of their souls. So Francis says, okay, you just got a leadership position in the church. You should be no more excited about that than if someone says, hey, hey, would you wash that person's feet? Their smelly, stinky feet. And, and, if you're, and if your position was taken from you, you should be no more upset about that than if someone said, I'm sorry, you don't get to wash feet anymore. Right? So this has always been, I mean, it's been this, and it's been this. Right? This is the church. And, and it's the calling of the church is to realize that Leaders, guess what you are? Equippers. Your office doesn't exist for you to be served, but for you to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And he goes on and says in verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint. Uh, sorry, that is right. There we go. From every joint and ligament, is, uh, which is, is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Builds itself up in love. We're to grow into Jesus as we speak the truth in love. And as each part of the body works properly, we're built up in love. But guess what? We don't just build ourselves up and Jesus is on vacation. In the next chapter, Paul will say, for no one ever hated his own body but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. This, is, this has been a verse I've been meditating on for the past few months, and God has really encountered me meditating on this verse. Just this truth that, like, Jesus is nourishing me. Jesus is nourishing you. Jesus is cherishing us all the time. Jesus is cherishing us, nourishing us, so that any building up that we do is just this pale comparison of, the ongoing work of Jesus in his own body. Dallas Willard said this, the aim of God in history is the creation of an all-inclusive community of loving persons. I love this phrase. With himself included in that community as its prime sustainer and most glorious inhabitant. Who's the most glorious inhabitant in this community? It's God. It's Jesus who's nourishing you and I, who's cherishing you and I. But here in in chapter 4, Paul decides to focus on the way the body builds up itself in love, when each part is equipped for ministry and working properly. And in the context, equipped by apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Here's a picture of uh, the Bridger Wilderness um, in, uh, let's see, where is it? Wyoming. By all accounts, a beautiful place to visit, right? Um, so the, uh, the park rangers at Bridger Wilderness uh, d- decided to collect their favorite comment cards that were submitted over the years. And let me just read to you a few of them. Trails need to be reconstructed. Please avoid building trails that go uphill. 
Trails need to be wider so people can walk while holding hands. Too many bugs and leeches and spiders and spider webs. Please spray the wilderness to rid areas of these pests. Please pave the trails so they can be snowplowed during the winter. Chairlifts need to be added in some places so that, sorry, typo, so that we can get to wonderful views without having to hike to them. The coyotes made too much noise last night and kept me awake. Please eradicate these annoying animals. A small deer came into my camp and stole my jar of pickles. Is there any way I can be reimbursed? Reflectors need to be placed on trees every 50 feet so people can hike at night with flashlights. Places where trails do not exist are not marked very well. I'm not sure what the ask is on this one. This is not a trail every time there's a space in between trees. This sums it all up. Too many rocks in the mountains. The consumer mindset of many churchgoers matches these comment cards, doesn't it? We live in a consumer-driven society of personal convenience, right? And like those visitors who failed to appreciate the entire point of going to the wilderness and seeing its rugged beauty, we miss the rugged beauty of the body of Christ and all its imperfections um, and want to be sanitized away from it. And the entire point of engaging it engaging in ministry and working properly. And when that happens, we become critical spectators rather than active members, and I see the cynicism all the time. And here's the high calling. You ready for it? Be a people joined and held together by every joint with which you're equipped so that when each of you, each part, are working properly, that makes the body grow and build itself up in love. Right? You cannot do that as a spectator. So here we go. Don't wait for permission to minister. One of the great fallacies, if you need one, here you go. Be blessed, minister, <laughs> if, if that meant something to you. Go minister. The, the, the ministers are not the paid staff for pastors or whatever else. Um, every member ministry is a key component of what we believe to be biblical, I think, clearly in Ephesians 4 and elsewhere, and that's who we are. And there's another fallacy that ministry is only really what happens at fullness-sanctioned services, events, and programs. That is also not true. Ministry can happen at any point when you engage and partner with the Holy Spirit to use the gifts God's given you in any context, at any time, right? Inside the church and outside the church to be a blessing and to grow up as the body of Christ. Let's grow up, y'all. And we need to speak the truth in love, Paul says, which I think is a fascinating point of how this growth happens. Focusing on this phrase of speaking the truth in love. As you know, apostles, prophets, teachers are mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12 as gifts. And the, the quote, five-fold gifts of Ephesians 4 are, of course, by no means an exhaustive list of spiritual gifts um, for the building up of the body of Christ. But as you read in Ephesians 4, you begin to see why these five are mentioned as you read on. Uh, because apostles, prophets, or apostles, Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers are all gifts of speaking. Um, yes, it's for the equipping of the saints, 
but it's also there is an emphasis on truth over falsehood, right? Um, so while other gifts like administration, giving, service, helps, mercy, healing are all crucial for the building up the body of Christ, make no mistake, um, these five gifts are in particular protect God's people from being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, to use Paul's turn of phrase. I like that phrase, the imagery. And so these five gifts are meant to protect God's people from lies, from deceit, rather than being tossed to and fro by these different schemes and deceits and doctrines. We would do what? Speak the truth. We'd be, that you would be equipped to know truth, yes, to know truth, but more than to know truth, to speak truth. And this is a point I really want to nail, <laughs> if I can. Um, the goal of church is not for you to leave more informed. And the goal of the fivefold ministry is not simply for you to even understand and know. Part of the equipping is that you would be equipped not just to know biblical truth, but for you to articulate biblical truth, to equip you to speak truth, right? For yourselves, in your own way, in your own context, in your own relationships, to equip you to speak truth. But just simply to speak truth? How to speak truth? Say it. To speak truth in love. Uh, this last week in, in our uh, Friday morning men's group, uh, we read Ephesians every week, and we have been for a few months, and it's been awesome. It only takes 15 minutes. It's actually not that hard. Uh, so we read Ephesians and then talk about it. And uh, for the first time this Friday, this past Friday, David uh, Robin said, hey, why don't we just do one passage, and let's just do the passage where it talks about apostles and prophets and stuff. It's, it's almost as if the same Holy Spirit lives in David. It's, it's a, and so... We, we just honed it on that passage, and, and Caleb, we were look, looking at this phrase, speaking the truth in love, and Caleb just uh, told us this story. This last week, he was on a diversity uh, appreciation uh, Skype or uh, Zoom call with 10 of his fellow employees, or uh, not employees, but coworkers, and uh, everyone was talking about the little fun things that make them them, their hobbies and their quirks and their personal uh, feelings about stuff, and um, it was all very awesome and great, and Caleb entered into it and showed uh, interest in everything everyone said. And, but he was sitting there going like, I can't talk about who I am as a person. You're asking me to talk about who I am personally without talking about Jesus. And so when it came to him, he just said, you know, we just had our fourth baby, and I've just realized how much grace I need from the Lord. And it's been hard, and it's been beautiful, and God is covering over my sin, and I'm just receiving the grace I so desperately need. And I'm realizing that I need grace so bad. In fact, I probably need grace more than all of you need grace. And they all kind of laugh like, ha, ha, ha. And they're like, oh, wait, he just said we need grace? <laughs> and Caleb said you could feel the awkwardness of being told you need God's grace. And Caleb said to himself, I, I determined I'm going to say this isn't just my truth. This is truth for all. And Caleb said, you know, I, I felt foolish. I felt foolish. He, he didn't regret what he said, but he, he, he could tell that everyone was like, okay, you're that guy. And I looked at him and I said, did you speak the truth in love? He said, I did. I did. We need evangelists to help us speak the truth in love out there, not just in here. 
Recently, I had a conversation with someone in this church, and I did not speak in love. In fact, I'm not even sure I spoke in truth. Um, they're actually in the room right now, and I just, I hurt this person, and I was so grieved for two days over how unloving I was, and they forgave me, and it just washed over me to receive God's grace through this person's forgiveness. And the good news is this, is that when we fail to speak the truth in love, we're to forgive as God has forgiven us, as Paul will say at the beginning of chapter 5. Love is a significant theme in Ephesians. In fact, Paul uses the word love 20 times in this letter, which is more than any other letter that he actually wrote. We need sent ones. We need apostles to equip believers to go out into the world speaking the truth in love. We need, a prophet. we need prophets to help us listen to the voice of God on others' behalf and to speak it to them in love. We need evangelists to help us speak the truth in love to those who do not yet know Christ. We need pastors to help us speak the truth in love to the broken and hurting in this room. And we need teachers to help us speak the truth in love and know the truth in love and live the truth in love. Love, ultimately, agape especially, is the love of charity. And it says, I'm concerned about your benefit and your good. I'm motivated by your benefit and your good. So that anytime I'm speaking something, even if it might be true, and I'm not motivated by their good and their benefit, but I'm really secretly motivated by how this will help me, how to be good for me, how to be benefiting to me, then that's where the breakdown happens. Uh, David Robbins has, has loved this quote from John Mark McMillan's uh, lyric. And he, he showed it to me a few years ago and just so touched me. Help me, holy Jesus, won't you show me how to live? I've got monsters at my table. I've got Bibles bent like shivs. Bibles bent like shivs. A shiv is a handmade blade, usually made out of something that was, that was not its an original purpose, to be a blade. And they're especially common in prisons where people take toothbrushes or spoons or pieces of glass or whatever. Um, and I, that is such an apt analogy for how we use the Bible. The Bible's purpose is not to destroy people, but we're talented enough to make it do that, aren't we? We can turn it into a shiv and cut people right open. It's there, uh, the 20th century um, pastor, uh, Howard Thurman, who was a mentor actually to many of the uh, civil rights leaders of the 20th century, including Dr. Martin Luther King. Um, he tells a story about how when he was a boy, it was his responsibility to read the Bible to his grandmother. And uh, she never permit him to read from the letters of Paul, and, except on occasion, the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians. And uh, years later, when he was older, he asked his grandmother why. And she said... Um, she, grew up, she had grown up a slave, and she said, during uh, the slave years, the white minister on the plantation was always preaching from the letters of Paul, slaves, be obedient to your masters. And she determined right then and there, if I ever learn to read, I'm never going to read from that part of the Bible. Bible's bent like shifts. It's ironic to me because that phrase is in chapter 5 of Ephesians, only one chapter after speaking the truth in love. It shows how quickly we default to self-advantage, self-benefit, and self... I mean, of course, that's, it's, it's obviously about the benefit of the plantation owner, right? It's not other-benefited, other-motivated. Now, quickly, we fail to do that. 
Let me close with this. Psalm 91, 11 and 12. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Is that true? This is truth, isn't it? In the Gospels, we learn that the devil took Jesus and put him on the pinnacle of the temple. A fall from that height would kill Jesus. And he says, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here because he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. He's, he's, he's going to catch you, right, Jesus? That's what the Bible says. And filled with only hate, he throws the Bible at Jesus. Jesus corrects his theology and says, you shouldn't test the Lord your God. But the devil knows how to take the Bible and bend it into a shiv, right? And this, I think, is the truth, is that when we take truth and don't speak it in love, we're making a shiv out of the truth, out of the Bible. And it's easy to do. And that's why we need the Spirit and we need the gospel. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for this, this passage. God, I thank you for this calling to speak the truth in love and grow up together in Christ. And I ask, God, that you would give us grace. In Jesus' name, to be the people you've called us to be. Amen.